And so we look at Romans chapter 5 and verse, verses 1 down through 11. The Apostle says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now, that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The King's Word for His kings and queens. Amen. We look at this text under the banner of God's love. And we do so having looked at the unshakable nature of justification. We have seen that the death and the resurrection is the total work of Christ. And that the resurrection in a specific nature was not merely an add-on to prove the deity of Jesus. But rather, it was more than just simply proving the deity of Jesus. It was actually effectual towards us. That His life is indeed part of the total gospel. And that the truth rightly applied and uh, to the doctrine here, especially of justification, is uh, a truth that is applied not merely to the first century and not merely to the apostles and not merely to those in the Old Testament, but also to all of you, all who would hear these words we've heard in chapter 4, verses 23, especially through 25, that the application of Scripture... All Scripture is inspired or breathed out by God and is useful for the teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness so that you may be adequate, complete um, for every good work. So, having uh, just reviewed a little bit of, of that beautiful Gospel, let us be reminded if Christ was not raised, you would still be dead in your sins and that Christ being raised and at the right hand of the Father reigning now from heaven we know our justification is secure. In order to lay this home, Paul moves into chapter 5 and enters a whole new section of of the um, argument to prepare them for their face-to-face meeting to strengthen the Roman church and for himself to be mutually strengthened by them. And he sees that they're going to need to be established in something in order to appreciate it. Because the fact of the matter is, as if the people under the Word do not understand that the Word is for them as God's children, 
They will be reluctant to come to the table. They'll be reluctant to open their mouths wide to be fed. They'll lack confidence because they will think that they might be on the outside of the whole picture instead of actually being included in the gospel. And therefore, it would be oftentimes like water rolling off the ground that has been hardened and cracked and it can't saturate it. So it would be for a church that doesn't know how secure, how unshakable, how certain their justification is in Christ Jesus. So Paul labors to make sure this church knows when he comes who they are in Christ and what they have in Christ. And that's why he goes into the therefores. Lloyd-Jones has uh, stated on this text, the therefore is oftentimes what causes either the greatest error of not understanding this indicative of the gospel uh, or the greatest joy. Because if you understand the therefore here, you know that it is because of what God has done for you that now all of these things apply to you. And therefore, if the Christian life is somehow um, missing the therefore, and somehow that we've got this notion that Christianity is what we do and not what has been valiantly done for us, then we will go our life long never knowing the security and the joy and perhaps not even really knowing God at all. Because we have really just made a God of ourselves and trying to live a life that we think is moral as an example. God did far more in coming down from heaven and glory taking on human flesh and dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. He did far more in doing all those things than simply coming to identify with us as human beings. He did not come to be just simply an example of how to live. He came to be an expiation to take our sin away. He came to be one who would bear the whole wrath of God against sinners who are at war with Him and He with them. And He made peace through the blood of His cross. And we looked at that peace We're not going to go into full explanation of it, but the peace of God here is an unshakable peace that has been provided through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not something that is simply an experiential peace, though it should result in one. It is an objective reality for all those for whom Christ died for their sins. This is what you have as a believer, justified believer in Christ Jesus. You have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is unlike the peace that the world offers. It's unlike the Pax Romana in which the context of this text will be given that would only last a few hundred years and it would come to an end. And it would begin already to be shaken within a few years of the writing of this letter as the Jewish wars would begin to take place around the 60s, 80s, 60s. And so the peace we have, Paul is describing, is a peace that is objectively forever not based on how anyone feels about it, but it ought to cause the greatest affections and the greatest joy when we understand it's ours in Christ Jesus. This section from chapter 5 all the way through 8 is making one argument, and that is the unshakable certainty of our justification from beginning to end. And therefore... Every time we come to this text in these three chapters, it's under that big heading. The unshakable certainty of being justified, declared righteous in Jesus Christ. As we move from the idea of peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, we pick up in verse 2. And I've divided it out as such. First, all under the banner of God's love towards us, that this love is hopeful. Now let me explain to you why, why the subject of God's love is so interweaved here and why I see it this way and why I'm explaining it this way. And it's because of what we see happen in verse 5. In verse 5 it says, Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Gospel is reflective of the Trinity. And here from chapter 5 through 8 we see the third person of the Trinity, though not always explicitly mentioned, is in the background of this entire section. Augustine actually made God's love to be synonymous with God's Spirit. Now, we're not sure that's entirely accurate, but the point of it being is that theologians before us have identified that God's love is so attached to the Spirit of God that it very well could almost be eclipsed by that third person, the Trinity, and by the love, depending on what side you're looking at it from. So, this love of the Holy Spirit in the third person of the Trinity follows the, the argument of chapters 1 through 4 that the only hope we have is that if God's Son, the second person of the Trinity, would atone for our sins. That argument has been proven from chapters 1 through 4, the great need of it, and the satisfaction that has been clearly proved from those chapters. Now, we get into the work of the Spirit, and then looking ahead, chapters 9 through 11, we see if you, the outline a lot of people take of Romans is from verses 16 and 17. I'm taking it from chapter 1, 1 through 3, where it's talking about the Trinity. And we find it speaks of the Scriptures and related to God's Word. And we see the Father and His Word demonstrating His faithfulness in verses 9 through 11. By the mere mention of the word Father... I would just encourage you to take a step back immediately in contemplating this God who is one God in three persons whom we call Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ together with His Son giving the Spirit of God to us by His regenerative and sanctifying grace that we would look at this Father not through the lens of projecting ourselves upon Him, but that us especially we would realize as fathers of children in this room that we get our model of what we should be from God, our Father. It is not our fatherhood that is projected on Him, but it is His fatherhood that is to be reflected in us. And as Christian believers, that's the only way we can ever be good fathers is if Somehow, in some semblance, His faithfulness to His Word becomes so part of our lives that our children, grandchildren, and our wives and our friends see the fatherhood of God reflected in us by virtue of our faithfulness to Him. This is vital. We're in understanding the Trinity in so far as we can, and it's been revealed we understand that it is the work of God, it is the good news of God, the gospel of the triune God, that makes it good news. 
In other words, if, if the gospel was merely about forgiving your sins, but didn't bring you to God, it would not be good news. If it was about simply um, forgiving your sin, but never making you like Him in, his, in character, it wouldn't be good news. So we're talking about a salvation whereby not only are you saved, past tense, but you are being saved, which is where the Christian counselors mainly deal with the problem. Their beef would always be with the fact that there's pastors and preachers out there preaching a gospel missing the whole center of the here and now, whereby spiritual warfare waged in the mind and the hearts of people is left open to the enemy because we do not have a confession that Christ is Lord now and reigning on the right hand of God and has given His Spirit for us to battle successfully against sin, against false ideas, against those things, lofty opinions, raised up against the knowledge of God. It's that area, the now, the present saving of our lives and our souls that is often missing in the present hope of people uh, trying to live for Jesus. That they don't think they can overcome sin and therefore they don't even try. And they don't see that the Word of God is for their sanctification and therefore they don't imbibe it. Well, I pause there in the middle, but there's the, the coming, which is the main thing Paul's speaking about in the text. He's talking about a salvation that will save you from the wrath of God to come. The judgment seat. In other words, this salvation is past, meaning you have been justified by faith. It is a present salvation. You are being saved. And then it is a future. You will be saved. But the predominant way the Bible speaks about salvation is not in the past, but in the present and the future. And that's the discovery of Romans. If you remember the beginning of the book, we spoke about that in chapter 1 when it's speaking about salvation. It's speaking about it largely in the third tense, the, the future tense, and often in the present tense. Not as much, just a couple times in the past tense. Because you've been saved, you could say that therefore, since you've been justified, now 5 opens up into a Narnia-type land of sanctification and a future and a hope for the people of God. So, you read, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through Him, we have obtained access by faith. That's the present, available, ongoing position of the Christian until He comes again. Access. Some have referred to this word merely as introduction and have translated it that way, uh, in particular because John Stott, from what I can um, trace back to the word studies, John Stott and probably influenced Lloyd-Jones and those two especially very influential commentators on the text have majored on this idea that it is an introduction, which it is, but it's not just that. The introduction aspect of this word means that someone had to bring you in and you didn't just simply come in. But you were introduced to God by which He holds His scepter out to you as a king and you have now access. 
But it's not as if you simply have been brought in, but your position has now been affected so that you continually have access. You have access all the time. You are now in a state of accessibility to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Lord. So the word access captures exactly what it's saying here. It's an accessium which gives the complete ability to be in the presence of God throughout your life. The knowledge of this presence is one in which is only given to those who have regenerate hearts. They realize that God is present with them and they are present with God in Christ from the beginning of conversion until the end of their lives and that it doesn't cease because they have access now. They just increasingly, increasingly find themselves to be at home with the Lord. In other words, the trajectory of access is one in which is always present in the life of a regenerate saint justified by faith. They have presently, in a perfect tense, access with the ongoing and increasing effects of these benefits. Most of the time when we read of access, we think of prayer. But I want to be careful in the sense of not thinking it's just that we go into the presence of God when we pray. It is true that when we go to the throne of grace, we come and access to him. But for the Christian, he is always living and moving and having his being in the presence of Jesus Christ. So that it is that we're not aiming for people to simply have prayer times, though those are helpful and those are necessary. But we're aiming for people to have lives of prayer. Lives whereby they converse with God throughout the day. Lives whereby that they are calling on God for help when they are in trouble. Lives that when they're calling upon God for comfort when they are downcast. Lives by which when they are stressed that they lean upon the Lord. But not just that, but lives upon which they continue to have a conversation with God, not merely in the times when they are at their worst, but times when God has achieved good in them and they praise Him in conversation throughout the days. It is not a man who simply has wrote prayer times and reading times that is the Christian. It's the fact that a man who is a Christian now has a continual access and ability to talk with God and God with him constantly. It is that God has come and made his abode in you by the Spirit of God, and he has poured out himself so that you would behold him and that he would live in you. You are the temple of the living God now. You're not called to go up to Jerusalem. He's made you a new Jerusalem that's coming down from heaven by the Spirit and filling the earth by His promise and for His glory. So it is. We have access by faith. We have this access by our trust that is a gift from God from above to believe in Him and lay ourselves upon Him in dependence And we are now in grace. And we are in a grace by which we are not able to throw ourselves out of it, nor are we able to be shaken out of it. 
This is not a grace that we wake up in one day and then we lose it the next day. But this grace is a grace in which we stand. And that is a perfect tense again. This grace we're standing in is a grace that indicates a great victory has been accomplished with ongoing consequence that can never be taken away. This victory has been achieved by God and therefore it has the ongoing result that you stand in the victory of this achievement of grace that he has had upon us. We have a grace in which we stand. Now, if none of that is hopeful, this is. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So it is when Paul says these words, he speaks about the opposite of which he's been talking about, that sinners that reject him and don't acknowledge him and boast in themselves and boast in other things that he has rebuked in the previous chapters. He's now saying we boast in God. We boast in the glory of God. We boast not in our achievements, our wisdom, our wealth, our power, but we boast in the glory of God. What is the glory of God here? Well, most clearly represented by the context of five through eight, it is Christ being formed in us, whereby we are conformed to the image of the Lord. So it is the believer can have absolute certainty that he will be made to look and to be like the Lord Jesus Christ over time, progressively, certainly, successfully. Because he stands in grace, he has peace with God, and hope, of course, is that which is future. It is not the reality. One is declared justified by faith in Christ. That means you can be, and you're unshakably certainly in him. Nothing can take you out of that because you didn't put yourself in it. He did. He achieved the victory. Christianity is about what he did for you and what he's doing for you and what he will do for you. And here, that will do, that hope that is future. Paul says, we boast in this hope that the glory of God, God will be glorified in us as promised and by us and through us. I noted that the whole reason he justified you as a sinner who believe is to glorify you with Christ. That's how chapter 8 will end. In other words, it goes from he predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It talks about those whom he called, those whom he justified, all those things, those whom he foreknew. And he says all of those in that category, he glorified. So the end game, the end goal that is promised in justifying the sinner is to glorify the sinner with Christ. That we will be made and conformed to the image of Christ, the true manhood. What it is to be truly human is to be like Jesus Christ, having dominion over all things, being given the earth as our inheritance in Christ. We are now in union with him. All that he has achieved is ours in him. And Paul is saying in startling terms here that God's love is that hopeful. 
There, there's no chance whatsoever of failure in this matter because this is not something you have achieved. It's not something that you will achieve. It is what God will do for you because He has already done, justified you in Christ. So when we look at these things, just a few aspects of illustration is we have, um, we have pictures in the Bible of uh, just hopeful, hopeful texts to help us just envision the idea. And one is in chapter um, 2 of Luke where if you remember at the temple, Simeon was told and given a specific promise that he would not die before he saw the Lord's Christ and come in the temple with the Lord Jesus Christ is Joseph and Mary bringing the Christ child to Simeon. There, the priest Simeon takes the child in the arms and he blesses God and he says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Here it is that we might take of application that we may fear the future because in this world we have tribulation and we have disease and we have death. We may fear the future because of various reasons of war and tumults, sufferings and difficulties. But for the Christian, the future is ours because Christ is ours and we are his. And so it is that we may, in some sense, know that when we leave this world, we will depart in peace. Because we have seen his salvation before we see it fully. In justification, we have seen it now and we will see it according to Paul. We rejoice in not what is seen right now, but in the hope of the glory of God to come in the believer's life. God promised to Simeon he would see the Christ. He has promised to his church that they will see their bodies and their souls and everything as the whole man conformed to the image of Christ. They will receive a glorified body in the end. Their souls will be made perfect by God through Jesus Christ. This is the future of the children of God. It is an even greater promise than was given to Simeon is ours to see this salvation come upon our lives. Another is the fact in Revelation twenty two twenty, the last prayer. The last prayer that is, is prayed is a confession of this hope. Because only those who have the fear taken away, the war taken away, the peace present, and, the, and the, uh, uh, the faith are able to say in response to all the things that would come in the world, come Lord Jesus. That's the prayer. Come Lord Jesus. You can't pray, come Lord Jesus. You're not wanting Him to come if he's your enemy. You're wanting him to come because he's your friend. You're wanting him to come because you're accepted by him. See how important it would be when Paul comes 
as an ambassador of Jesus Christ to proclaim the message and the word of the people. That they would be in a state that they understand their standing with the Lord indissolvable. Their status as children and the relationship they have as reconciled human beings to God no longer at war. That they would be ready now to receive the food their father has prepared for them. Because if not, if they're still thinking the wars at hand between God and them, then the whole time they're thinking, how can I be made right? And unfortunately, the evangelical church has spent the last century in many ways creating churches whereby they create the crisis of war in the pulpits so that people have to respond in a way to get right with God again. And the numerous amount of rededications and the numerous amount of baptisms and the numerous amount of religious things and duties that have been carried out in churches throughout our land in the last hundred years have been nothing more than show and theater and not real transformation. Had it been real transformation, we would not be in the mess we're in today. At the bottom of the barrel, it lays with the redeemed people of God to respond to the gospel of God and to carry out their duties in this world for the glory of God. In fact, it is contingent upon the church that they would respond to God rightly in this world, bringing the gospel to the nations before Christ comes. Many people are are waiting for the tragedies to come passively in this world and letting the world go on to destruction. But the fact of the matter is, is Acts chapter 3, and I read this in Table Talk twice this week, where they said it very plainly. And that is, the fact of the matter is, Christ doesn't return until the church does its job in responding to the gospel. Scripture and its authority tells us that. You say, well, is it dependent on man? No, it's not dependent on man, but it is required of His people to carry out the commission before He comes. He will make sure it happens. In His time and in His way, He will make sure that happens. But it is still a responsibility that we would be responsive to the Gospel and not toying and playing around with a lot of showing ourselves to try to be justified. God's the justifier of the sinner. No walking an aisle. No church membership. No baptism. Nothing can save you but faith in Christ alone. And Paul is preaching a message saying once you have that faith, there's nothing that can change it. Your job is not to come and simply try to get it. Your job is now to rest in that and live obediently to God. It's no longer a matter of you trying to be saved. It's a matter of you learning to live saved and to have the hope of the future that you will be saved. And you begin to actually show up on the Lord's Day from a state of rest so that you go out and work during the week in the power that the Lord supplies. We live not by bread alone, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And we understand as Christians that we're not going to make it simply by the bread that we can put on our tables as if we can even do that. We make it because God has revealed Himself in this world and continues to make His love known to us. Had He withdrawn or if He withdrew a single day, the idea that He loves us, we would perish. 
But the fact of the matter is, is somehow in the midst of all the darkness and the clouds and the difficulties, we know deep within, because Paul says it here, he says, this has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, the Bible says you're none of His. Therefore, the Christian stands continually in this life and increasingly to the end only on the basis that His Spirit is present in you. And you know deep within your soul by the presence of the Spirit that He deeply and profoundly loves you. This is not about a love that you have towards Him. That will result. Paul's speaking about a love that He has for you. And he puts it there so that it remains forever. And so, what would it be like if we acted that way towards our earthly fathers and were accomplished coming up to them and doubting their loving, saying, do you love me? And all these type of things. Well, after a while, it would get kind of old. The reality is, is we need to come praising God for this magnificent love. And it's our aim today to proclaim this love from this text so that we are just absolutely amazed by the graciousness and kindness and the, the love of God, because this love is absolutely hopeful. If you think about the Song of Solomon, it's a picture about a Shulamite whose shepherd lover is absent from her. And the whole book, she is longing to be present with him while Solomon objectifies her and uses her and pictures her like the sordid men of the world who basically use women as objects. And she knows there's a lover, there's a shepherd who doesn't look at me that way. There's a shepherd who loves me perfectly. There's a shepherd whom I belong to and I want to be with him. And the whole book, she is longing to be with him until finally at the very end, the shepherd comes and the shepherd says, you can have, you can have all your wives, Solomon. You can have your hundreds. You can have your thousands of chariots and horses, but I'll have my one. And so Christ would say to the church, He has His one. He has the church. And the church is His. And we're in this world longing for our shepherd lover to return. And we pray, come Lord Jesus, because we want Him to come. But we are not just praying that. We're not just living in some state where we go and we have a little access here and a little access here. We're living a life in constant conversation with God and constantly wishing to please our Father and to serve the Son. And we see here that this is guaranteed to result in being glorified with Christ in the very end. So we are people most hopeful because of God's love. But that's not the only aspect of God's love. There's three. The third, the second that we deal with is the fact that the question comes into mind, can anything at all of tribulation or suffering or difficulty come our way that's going to shake us from this? And the answer is no. We've got into it a little bit, but it says here, not only that, but we rejoice, that is we boast, that's the same word, rejoice and boast here, in our sufferings, in a sense like James says, because of our sufferings. Well, see, the non-Christian can't rejoice because of their sufferings, because the sufferings aren't producing anything of value in their lives. Their sufferings make them hate God more. Sufferings upon the believer do something entirely different because it's different soil. These sufferings, it says, these sufferings for the believer, they're able to rejoice at the cause of these in their lives as suffering is brought in their lives by their Father, permitting it 
it says that it's because they know these things. They know that suffering produces endurance. This love, if you put it under a banner, God's love is hopeful. We looked at God's love is fruitful or productive. God's love produces the suffering that's brought our way. Instead of leading us away from God, it produces an endurance to remain with him. We want to remain in the church, remain faithful, remain in fidelity to his truth. And so we have this endurance, this steadfastness. And this is not an endurance like of the philosophy even of this day and a philosophy that's often present within the church more than we would probably know. I didn't really know how present it was, but the stoicism that exists within the church is very prevalent in our lives. You see, stoicism we might see more brilliantly in Britain where you see the very stiff upper lip And during the world wars, people are taught just to carry on, get along. Don't let it affect you. Therefore, they train their minds. Their governments train their minds. They try to train their minds in a way, in a philosophy of life, whereby they learn to not let things affect them. And therefore, um, there's an intricate system to this in more people's uh, lives than they may realize. but, But it's not always very explicit, but it's really a natural tendency that we would run towards a philosophy to simply find a way where we're just not affected by the sufferings. We're not affected by the tribulations. And that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's actually speaking tremendously positive. He's speaking about the fact that we are to go into these sufferings with joy. We're to be greatly affected by them because they're, being, they're producing endurance in our lives. And this endurance actually leads to producing character. The absence of character in America's young people is not a result of just simply that they, uh, they didn't get the right education or they didn't get the right political atmosphere or, or they were born in the wrong country or these type of things. No, the fact of the matter is, is they don't know Christ. When kids don't have character... It's because they haven't taught, been taught Jesus. Christ must be in you for you to build endurance and character. Therefore, the first aim of the parent or the missionary or the pastor is to bring Christ to the people. Young and old. Because the only hope is that Christ gets in the heart. If the Holy Spirit is not poured into the heart, like it says here, so as to give rise to these things, and that these are none of His, they don't belong to Christ, then guess what? When suffering comes, it makes you hate God. It doesn't make you love Him. It doesn't make you know you're loved by God. It actually makes you believe the opposite. Why, God? Why are you being so cruel? No, for the believer, that's not the attitude. The believer is taken closer to God when he suffers. Not because of the person, but because there's a person, the Holy Spirit, living in them. Again, let us underscore, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're none of His. But those who have the Spirit of God, when suffering comes, it will produce endurance. When endurance is produced, it will produce character. When character is produced, it produces 
hope, knowing that they're not giving up on life, but the future remains bright for them because, again, we have just underscored our future, the future of those who are justified in Jesus Christ and by Christ's blood and by his resurrection, both. The future of such is glory with Jesus Christ forever. So God's love is productive. It doesn't, this hope does not put us to shame. And the reason why, the reason why we see here is because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That is a, a fact. The Spirit, it's not an issue of if you feel that. The way you can certainly know that is that suffering is going to produce these things, character and endurance and character and hope. That's one way you can know. And if you recognized even those moments that God has pricked your heart, that that's not true in your life when suffering comes, then this is not to condemn you. This is to say, come. Come, he says, he won't cast out any who come. The fault is not going to be because Christ didn't come. It's going to be because you didn't come. And the invitation is to come. Come receive Christ. Be justified by faith. Be declared righteous. And have the Holy Spirit dwell in you so that you would have hope. Because there's really no hope without that being the condition of a fact in your life. This is a past tense. It has been accomplished. And as we think about just this magnificent love, I would remind you that the Father is said to have to love us the way He has loved His own Son. Because we're in His Son. Think about that. The way the Father loves Jesus is the same love He loves you and me with. It's tremendously encouraging to the believer's life because this love cannot merely, this love is, is not merely going to be something you experience one day and be shaken out of it and lose it. But it's this love that will hold you, that will hold fast to your life, regardless of any amount of strength or power or ability. In fact, it's on the very basis you have none. That He has come and laid Himself upon you and given you life like Elijah and Elisha upon the bodies of the dead. He has raised you to life. And He has remained with you by the Spirit. And He loves you exactly how He loves Jesus. Because you're in Jesus Christ. And he promises that nothing that comes against you will actually harm you in the area of destroying your status and relationship with him. But actually, it will produce in you all of these effects. So when you see these effects, you're able to endure through something and you're able to build character through something and you're able to have hope of the future and you can't explain why. The praise should go to God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for your Holy Spirit. 
Say with the confession, I believe in the Holy Spirit in those moments. Give praise to God and thanksgiving to God. Don't just make it to where your prayers are always about just simply a need for the next thing you want, but make it about praise for the things He's constantly giving daily, weekly in your lives because you're His children now. And nothing is going to separate you from His love. And as, as the text leads upward into this great mountain and hill of His love, of the covenant, He enters into the whole basis, the whole grounds, the whole rock upon which all of this is built. And again, that rock is Christ. It isn't what you do. The Gospel's not what you do. It's what He's done for you. It's not what you were able to give. You couldn't give anything. And He makes this blatantly clear with arguments from greater to lesser and greater to lesser and greater to lesser in the final paragraph of verses 6 down through verse 11. And here, I would say, is the most important point. It's the pinnacle point. It's the most... A strong point of the text that he's making. And he's saying that not only is God's love here one that is hopeful, and not only is God's love one that is fruitful or productive, but God's love is impassable. And you say, what in the world is that? Sounds like impossible. Well, it's not. It's, uh, if I could say it in the old British, it would be impossible. But in, impassable, it all sounds the same, but what it means is without passions. You say, God's love is without passions. We're really saying God is without passions. God is not affected or made to love people on the basis of some act of man. He is not made to have a love towards us because we have excited Him. He is not made to have a love towards us because we have done something for Him. He does not have a love for us because we have made Him to pity us. He does not love us on the basis of anything in us that we offer to Him or anything that we could do to Him. He is unaffected. He cannot be changed. He's the perfect of all beings. He is without passions. Like we, with passions, understand that someone can do something to us that would make us feel affection for them. God is not like that. God is constantly, perfectly, maximally loving. And it is not a love that is stirred up by man. It is not based on man. It is not based on anything done to God. It is based on God's holy character that flows out of Him. The reason why He loves is because of who He is, not because of anything that man does for Him. This is the argument Paul's making. Let's flesh it out. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Notice the underscore again and again what he's describing of us. He's saying nothing in you could have made God love you. He says He died while we were still weak. While we were ungodly. He explains, uh, illustration, He says, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But then He contrasts God and He says, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for it. You see the impassibility? In other words, without passions, He's not loving us. Because of us. He's loving us because of Himself. His own character. 
Now, the reason this is mattering, if, you're, if your brain cells are starting to bounce off each other at this moment, the reason this matters is because the security and certainty of justification depends on the fact that this love is not based on anything you could ever do to lose it or get it. It has to be based solely upon the perfections of God that never change. His love never changes. His love is overflowing into the world by his own character and purpose and will. He shows his love for us. It says while we were, and here's another description of us, still sinners, we're not motivating this love. Christ died for us. And since therefore, and, and some people would say this is the, this is basically the commentary of John 3.16. The commentary of John 3.16, if that helps you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified. So that was the state of us. Sinners, ungodly, weak. He died for us. New state, justified. So now we're justified, greater to lesser. By His blood, He says, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. That's future. So if we've been justified now by His blood in the present, then much more of the future will we be saved by His life. What is He saying? He's saying Jesus is alive at the right hand of the Father right now. Therefore, the greater to lesser argument, His death did one thing, His life continues to do something guaranteeing the future. We're not serving a God, uh, God the Son in heaven at the right hand of the Father who's dead. He's alive and He's reigning. Another proof of the reign of Christ now. Greater to lesser argument, he moves into another. He says, for if while we were enemies, describing our state out of peace, whereas what chapter 5 verse 1 indicates the peace of God, he's saying while we were enemies in the opposite state, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Here's the lesser, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? There it is again, underscoring. The risen Christ and the resurrection of Christ, not merely the death, is everybody, every bit important for the saving of our souls and the securing of them forever and for the future as it is for the dying and expiating and propitiating for our sins. He's saying it's absolutely certain. If this is one thing, then much more this. This is one thing, much more this. Then he goes on, he says, again, more than that. And he comes back to, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation, simply back to the idea of this um, matter where our debt has been placed on Christ and we have now been reconciled in relationship, his righteousness placed on us, and we are now reconciled to him presently. The Bible goes on to speak of a ministry of reconciliation for the points and purposes right now, though. The issue at hand is the issue. The issue at hand is the issue about love and the love that is not based on anything man could do, good or bad. He has loved us because he loved us. He has loved us because of his own impassable character that cannot be changed ever, that cannot be motivated, cannot be stirred up. God is perfectly 
all the time, throughout all eternity, perfectly and maximally loving. The reason why we're in the gospel and we're in Christ and Christ is in us by his spirit, the hope of glory, is only the basis that there is a God like this in the universe. And there is no other. This God exists. And because this God exists, you have maximal, eternal, perfect love that is yours in Christ Jesus. And far from it being simply for those who are not yet in Christ Jesus as a, a, a picture to where you're simply called to remain out of Christ Jesus, it is an invitation in who would be presented this feast and not want to come to the table? Who would be presented of this God so glorious, so unable to be affected by what man does? A perfect God, a holy God, a beautiful God, a, and a maximally loving God. He's the reason that there's any love whatsoever, any goodness, any grace in the world at all. We get focused on all the bad. We get focused on all the difficulty. But the real question is, why does there exist any semblance of love, any semblance of goodness anywhere in the entire universe? And it can only be because there's an existence of this God. And He invites you to come. He invites you to come in and He will not cast you out. He invites you to realize He has so loved the world that He gave His Son not to condemn you, but to so that in this time, today will be the day of salvation for those who will put their trust in Him and that they would share in the justified perfections that have been proclaimed from this text. And that so you would sit in the congregation, no longer sitting there with the lips tight and with your heart closed and your arms folded, but that you would actually open yourself wide to receive the goodness of God. So that the preaching event would no longer simply be you're the outsider and everybody else is inside, but that you would be inside and you would be a child with your mouth open like a bird to its hands for food. You would be one in whom is ready to receive all that God wants to give you on a given week so that it would empower you through the rest of the week, not merely to go to Him every now and then in prayer, but to have a constant conversation with God, living your life, Karam Deo, in the presence and the glory of God in whom we live and move and have our being as Christians. Who, who could come up with this love? Who could possess this love? Except there'd be a God who's revealed this love. So Paul prays, he prays for the church of the most mature spiritual theological understanding. He says that God would give you the strength to know to know this love, comprehend it, the breadth, length, height, depth of the love of God in Christ Jesus, that it would be your whole life long of just simply getting to know this God. Let it begin today, if it hasn't already. And if it is yours, and if it is the fact that you know this is what God's producing in your life, this is the fruit, this is the hope you have, and this is the God you serve that's without passions, that is impassable. And spend your day with thanksgiving to Him today. Let us pray. We'll stand together, please. Father, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your mercy and thank You for Your love. A love that is so incomprehensible without the strength You provide us, without the understanding You give us, without the revelation You have provided from Your Word. That we would never know You except that You had stepped down from heaven in Your Son 
and revealed yourself to us as Father, and we your children. We come thankful that we are in your house, and we belong to you, our Father. And we rejoice in the hope of your glory that we will one day be most certainly and surely because of your son's work. We will be made without spot or wrinkle before you exactly what is pleasing in your sight. Now, Father, let us remember why it is we have this great possession of your love. As we remember, it was your son who died for our sins, whose body was broken and whose blood was shed for the new covenant and for us to be members of it. May we come now freely who believe in you, not unbelieving, but believing in you and taking of that which would nourish and strengthen us and establish us more in the faith. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You come.